A quick note, Ghislaine's name has been pronounced a number of different ways in coverage about her and her father. In these episodes, we're using the pronunciation used by her family members. The world is full of monsters. We see them on the news every day. War criminals, mass murderers, human traffickers. And you sometimes can't help but wonder, who raised someone like that? Was it a matter of nature versus nurture? Were they just living by examples set by their loved ones? You can't always blame a person's upbringing. But in some families, there's a generational plague of privilege. A pattern of special treatments, skirting the law, brushing things under the rug. Take Glenn Maxwell, for example. Unless you've managed to avoid the news for the last several years, you've probably heard her name tied to the infamous Jeffrey Epstein case. And, like me, you've probably wondered what kind of family she came from. Which is why we're here today, not talking about Glenn, but instead, the man behind her story. And no, not Jeffrey either. A newspaper baron who bullied his way to the top of the media world. A man who was confident and impatient and had a talent for making people feel small. A mogul who was hungry for money, approval, fame, and influence. Glenn's father, Robert Maxwell. And his story, while often untold, is nearly as scandalous and evil as his daughter's. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Robert Maxwell. The controversial newspaper tycoon revolutionized Britain's media landscape and gutted unions in the process. Today, we'll cover Robert's tumultuous life, culminating in his famed disappearance from his yacht in 1991. Next time, we'll dig into three conspiracy theories about what may have happened to Robert. First, we'll explore the possibility he was murdered by the crew of the boat he disappeared from. Then, we'll consider whether Israeli assassins were responsible for his death. Finally, we'll examine whether Robert suffered a deadly accident brought upon by his poor health. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Robert Maxwell was a man full of tall tales and misconceptions. And some might say it started right out of the womb. Because if you ask most people, they'd have no idea who Jan Ludwig Hyman Benjamin Hawk is. But that was Robert Maxwell's birth name, which was given to him the day he arrived in this world in June 1923. Now, Before we dive in deeper, we'd like to note that many of the details we include of Robert Maxwell's life come from journalist John Preston's book, Fall. Jan, or let's call him his chosen name to avoid confusion, Robert, was raised in a small town in Czechoslovakia. His Jewish parents, Mehel and Hanka, did their best to provide a good life for their family. But Robert and his siblings often went to bed hungry. The Hawks, who'd eventually have nine children, resided in a two-room shack. The entire family slept on straw mattresses, with the youngest on cots. It's easy to imagine young Robert, or Jan, staring up at the ceiling at night, listening to his stomach growl, wondering if he would ever feel satisfied. But the setbacks didn't faze his mother, Hanka. She was convinced her son was destined for greatness. Allegedly, she even told the neighbors he'd be famous one day. In their tiny village, such a statement invited laughter, but her words lit a fire inside the young boy. As Robert got older, many described him as mischievous. And if anyone dared cross him, that mischief turned to anger. Robert's temper, which he likely inherited from his father, made it difficult for the pair to get along. So instead, Honka was the one Robert turned to. And he was desperate for an opportunity to make her proud. On March 15, 1939, at the age of 15, that chance finally came. Robert was in Bratislava selling trinkets on the streets when the news broke. The Nazis had invaded Czechoslovakia. Not one to sit on the sidelines, Robert decided this was his moment to shine. He cut off his side locks to avoid standing out to any Nazi soldiers he might encounter. Then he grabbed the train home. Upon arrival, he told his parents he was going off to fight in the war. And he did. According to his own accounts, Robert crossed 275 miles of farms and forests to enlist in Budapest. If this sounds too good to be true, you might be right. According to journalist and author John Preston, 
This might have been one of his earliest embellished tales, because his cousin says the two actually took a train to Budapest with tickets their parents bought for them. Regardless of how they got there, Robert joined the Hungarian underground resistance movement shortly after arriving in Budapest. The group helped Jewish Czech refugees flee west. But about six months later, Robert was arrested at the Hungarian border, betrayed by a man who was supposed to be helping him. As a result, he was allegedly taken back to Budapest and locked in a windowless cell for four months. Robert's Hungarian captors accused him of being a spy. They shackled him to the wall, beat him with bicycle chains, even broke his nose. They demanded he reveal the resistance movement's secrets, but Robert refused to disclose a thing. By January 1940, the Hungarians arranged a trial for Robert. They were certain he'd be found guilty of espionage. Robert needed a way out. Because he was so young, just a few months after his 16th birthday, Robert was only assigned one guard on the drive to the courthouse instead of the customary two. The next part of the story varies depending on when Robert told it. At one point, he claimed he smashed the guard in the head with his handcuffs. Other iterations include him hitting the guard with a stick and killing him. But the story always ends the same. After the scuffle, Robert jumped out of a moving van and hid under a bridge until he was in the clear. He never made it to that trial. From there, Robert traveled to France, and when the country fell to the Nazis, he escaped to Britain. There, he claimed he learned how to speak English from a woman in a tobacco shop. Shortly after, Robert joined the British Army. He quickly rose up the chain of command and even took part in the invasion of Normandy in 1944. Robert earned a reputation for taking extraordinary chances. In 1945, while at the Dutch-German border, he stormed a German machine gun nest, saving many of his fellow soldiers. For this, he was awarded the Military Cross for Heroism in the Face of Enemy Action. But Robert wasn't in a celebratory mood when he was bestowed the award, and for good reason. The day before, Robert received some devastating news. Aside from his two sisters, the rest of his family had been killed by the Nazis at Auschwitz. It had been five years since Robert left for the war and said goodbye to his family. Ever since, he didn't know what became of them. To say it was a heartbreaking way for their story to end would be an understatement. By this point, Robert had been fully immersed in his army career. He'd been climbing the ranks since 1940 and just prior to his family's death had received a unique opportunity. The Allied forces needed someone to gather intelligence among their ranks. Partly because of his upbringing, Robert was fluent in French, German, English, Hungarian, Czech, Romanian, and Yiddish. He could blend in with many different people, making him the perfect person to go undercover. So he was sent to Paris to find information about a rumored communist uprising. Robert had already shown a knack for deception, but it turned out he was also great with disguises. He often changed who he was depending on the assignment. 
maybe a military official or a simple day laborer. Everything was going well. Then fate stepped in one fall day in 1944 and made things even better. Robert was walking into a Parisian club when he spotted a woman with the most gorgeous blue eyes he'd ever seen. Her name was Betty Maynard. She was a 23-year-old French woman from an influential Protestant family. When Robert saw her, he knew he wanted to spend the rest of his life with her. And lucky for him, the feeling was mutual. The two hit it off and began a passionate love affair. Within four months, Robert proposed. He promised Betty many things. They'd build a big family, he would earn them a fortune, and he'd make her happy for the rest of his days. How can you turn down a proposal like that? She, of course, accepted. With a newfound sense of self, Robert decided he needed a new name, one that represented the influential person he was determined to become. Ever since he'd left Czechoslovakia, he ditched his birth name, Jan, and gone by several aliases, Private Leslie Jones, Lance Corporal Leslie Smith, even Ivan de Maurier, after the brand of cigarettes he smoked. Now, at the suggestion of a Scottish friend, he decided to land on Ian Robert Maxwell. Then, he set out once more to make his late mother proud. In 1946, after earning the title of captain, Robert was transferred to Berlin. Eventually, he moved out of intelligence and was put in charge of the press department of the Public Relations and Information Services Control, or PRISC, an organization started by the UK government, which had helped reconstruction in Germany ever since the war ended a year prior. At the PRISC, Robert was responsible for reviewing the plays, films, and books people wanted to produce. His job was to ensure the works didn't contain secret Nazi propaganda. Robert enjoyed the new position. He got to meet high rollers in publishing and influence what people were talking about in Germany. This gave him an immense sense of power, one he relished and sought moving forward. In March 1946, Betty gave birth to the couple's first child, a son named Michael. Robert was thrilled. At 23, he had a healthy, budding family and was on his way to fulfilling two of the three promises he'd made Betty. Even still, it wasn't enough. Robert wanted more. Coming up, Robert seeks new ways to satiate his hunger. Listeners, in honor of May being Missing and Unidentified Persons Awareness Month, Parcast is presenting a new collection of captivating stories you do not want to miss. On Disappearances, Sarah Turney examines the disturbing crimes linked to the Highway of Tears and the Bethesda Home for Girls. Plus, she welcomes the founders of the Black and Missing Foundation for a special discussion. Catch these episodes starting May 4th. Then, on Solved Murders, discover three no-body homicide cases rife with cons, conspiracies, and conflicting statements. The Solved Murders special, The Missing Dead, starts May 17th. Follow Disappearances and Solved Murders to hear all of these episodes all month long. Listen free, only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. 
Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Now, back to the story. In 1946, Robert Maxwell was just hitting his stride. He was working for the Public Relations and Information Services Control and was responsible for censoring Nazi propaganda. Plus, Robert and his wife Betty had just welcomed their first child. But Robert yearned for more. More money, more prestige, more power. He was always keeping an eye out for the next opportunity, which happened to be just around the corner. While making contacts in the Berlin publishing world, Robert met a man named Ferdinand Springer. Springer owned the world's leading publisher of scientific works. At least it was before the war. Springer had a major collection of scientific texts, including thousands of books and journals. Researchers all over the world were hungry for this information. But thanks to the restrictions placed on Germany after its defeat, large shipments to other countries weren't allowed. Springer's hands were tied. But Robert saw an opening. He left his censor job behind and acquired the international distribution rights to Springer's catalogs. Over the next five years, Robert used his connections in publishing to sell the backlogged material. Eventually, he took out a loan and purchased his own publishing company, which he renamed Permagon Press. By 1955, Pergamon Press was well on its way to earning Robert a fortune. On the family front, Betty had recently given birth to the couple's sixth child, a girl named Corrine. Robert had gone from a penniless, orphaned refugee to a major player in the scientific publishing world. He was convinced this was just the beginning. But then, life hit a speed bump. In September 1955, Robert visited the doctor for chest pains. After a few x-rays, a specialist revealed he had malignant tumors in both lungs. This might have been because of his 60-cigarette-a-day habit. The specialist said Robert only had four weeks to live. Robert took a long, hard look at the life he'd built. He had a beautiful family, an adoring wife, a comfortable income. But all he could see was what he hadn't accomplished. His mother had predicted he would become famous, not just moderately successful. But now it appeared he was out of time. As he faced his own mortality... He called many religious figures to his bedside across faiths, a rabbi, a Catholic priest, even a Church of England vicar. But despite their assurances, it seems none of them were able to convince Robert that God did exist. Dispirited, Robert resigned himself to his fate. He said goodbye to his children and spent his days lying in bed, waiting for death to take him. 
perhaps unsure of whether there was anything after this life at all. Meanwhile, Betty refused to accept her husband's fate. She sought a second opinion from a famous British radiologist who took new x-rays. After careful consideration, he told Robert his first diagnosis was wrong. He only had a tumor in one lung, and after a quick operation, doctors found it to be benign. Robert lost only half a lung and could make a recovery. Even if there wasn't a god, something had given him a second chance. Robert's brush with death made him realize things could end at any moment. If he wanted to make his mark, he had to get to work fast. He jumped back into his publishing business with newfound vigor. While he grew his company, he set a lofty goal for himself. He wanted to gain political power in England. The first step was to run for parliament. Allegedly, even though his politics supposedly skewed conservative, Robert felt his best shot at getting into office was to join the Labour Party. He campaigned in Britain's 1959 general election, running under his military title of captain. Between his political aspirations and his publishing company, he had little time to spend with his family. His son Philip's first words were, Goodbye, Daddy. Ultimately, Robert's first endeavor in politics proved unsuccessful. He was narrowly beaten by the Conservative Party candidate. But that wasn't the only loss he suffered during this period. In 1957, Robert and Betty got a serious telegram while on vacation in Barbados. Their three-year-old daughter, Corrine, had been rushed to the hospital. The couple returned to London, where they were told Corrine had leukemia. Robert called specialists across Europe, but it was no use. Corrine died in his arms weeks later. A few years after that, on Christmas Day, 1961... Robert and Betty welcomed their youngest daughter, Glenn. But three days later, on December 28th, their eldest son, Michael, was in a car accident. The 15-year-old was riding with the family chauffeur when the car crashed into a broken-down truck on the side of the road. Though he was rushed to the hospital, Michael sustained serious head injuries and slipped into a coma. The doctors weren't sure Michael would ever wake up. If he did, he likely wouldn't be the same. The family needed their patriarch now more than ever. But Robert, who'd never truly dealt with his own family's death, didn't know how to cope or support his current family. According to Robert's children, it seemed to mark a dark change in Robert's whole demeanor. Instead, he pulled away, becoming a strict disciplinarian with an unpredictable temper. His children later called him quizzing them on their whereabouts. He forbade them from going to parties or social events. Eventually, their father became synonymous with fear and disappointment. After Michael's accident, Robert and Betty's relationship also took a hit. Early in their marriage, the two had been madly in love. But according to people close to the family... As Robert focused more on his career, the pair started to live increasingly separate lives. Allegedly, they ended up mostly communicating by memo in the later years of their marriage. Before long, Robert had no close friends at all, only relationships through work. Finally, in 1964, Robert had a win. He was elected to Parliament. 
That same year, Pergamon Press went public with a valuation of $3.5 million, nearly $30 million today. At 40 years old, Robert was now a millionaire. With his new position in Parliament, Robert quickly became an eccentric public figure. He made long-winded speeches in the House of Commons and rubbed shoulders with Britain's upper crust. His brash personality helped him gain a reputation as someone who got things done. As a result, he was re-elected in 1966. Now, Robert set his sights on a loftier goal, the prime minister position. But things were about to take another turn. In 1968, Robert's son Michael finally succumbed to his condition and died at the age of 21. But a year later, in 1969, Robert was given an opportunity to relieve some of the stress he must have been feeling. An American businessman named Saul Steinberg wanted to buy Pergamon Press. He offered 25 million pounds, around 375 million pounds in today's currency. Robert entertained the idea, but when Steinberg's accountants went through the company's books prior to the purchase, they discovered something alarming. Robert had gotten very creative with his accounting. Allegedly, he'd been grossly inflating his sales, using one of his other companies to buy his books from Pergamon to make them appear more successful. Steinberg told Pergamon's board of directors the only way he'd go through with the purchase was if Robert was taken out of the business. They agreed, and Robert was kicked off the board and forced to sell his shares of the company. The news that Robert Maxwell was not as successful as he claimed hit Britain like a hurricane. The financial scandal ruined his chances of re-election to Parliament, and he lost to a Conservative opponent in 1970. Over the past 13 years, Robert had lost his daughter, his son, his first company, and his political career. For the first time in decades, money was a concern. Not to mention, his children were afraid of him, and his wife had grown estranged. For some people, this would have been a wake-up call, a chance to refocus their life on the important things. Instead, Robert forged a different path, revenge. Coming up, Robert Maxwell claws his way back to the top. Now, back to the story. By the early 1970s, Robert Maxwell had lost everything. His reputation was in shambles, his political career was dead in the water, and he'd been ousted from his company, Pergamon Press. It would take a miracle to climb out of this hole. Luckily, Robert had an ace up his sleeve. While Robert no longer had any stake in Pergamon, he still owned a number of connected companies. Among them was an American subsidiary of the business. On its face, the subsidiary seemed like nothing. But in reality, it was the only part of the organization that made any money. Steinberg, it turned out, had paid 25 million pounds for the worthless piece of the company. To retaliate for being ousted, Robert stopped sending money over from the American branch, named to starve out Pergamon. And it seemed to work. By 1974, Pergamon Press was on the verge of bankruptcy. Knowing the time was right, Robert offered a deal. He'd buy it back for a fraction of what Steinberg paid for it. Steinberg had no choice but to agree. 
which meant Robert was back in the game. But redemption wasn't enough. When news of the financial scandal first broke, former business partners and acquaintances ran for the hills, thinking he would never recover. Robert knew he now had a chance to prove those doubters wrong. He'd build up his business better than before. Those who deserted him would regret the day they counted Robert Maxwell out. It took several years, but Robert perfected his ruthless business practices and started to build the media empire he'd always dreamed of. It started with the purchase of the British Printing Corporation in 1981. When he bought it, they were on the verge of bankruptcy, but within six years, the company was thriving and reportedly worth 80 times more. In 1984, Robert got into news media when he rescued the famous British tabloid, The Daily Mirror, from a similar situation. In 1989, he went international, paying $2.6 billion for American publisher Macmillan. And for good measure, he swept in to save the New York Daily News, America's oldest tabloid, which had been on the verge of collapse thanks to a prolonged strike. To oversee his new international publishing empire, Robert split his time between Britain and America. He haunted the offices, bossing people around and demanding massive changes on deadline. Sometimes he'd even threaten to shut down the publications just to get the print unions to accept widespread layoffs. This may have inspired others, like Australian media rival Rupert Murdoch, to follow suit. And it effectively revolutionized the printing business and severely weakened the power of unions within the industry. Of course, the whole time he was undercutting unions, Robert bragged excessively about the employee pension funds he ran. Some of his colleagues said he'd scream at and humiliate anyone who disagreed with him. He took pleasure in making people wait outside his office, sometimes possibly for days, to have a meeting with him. Robert also used his papers to boost his own fame. He featured himself on the covers. He built relationships with world leaders, including Margaret Thatcher, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Shamir. With his newfound notoriety, Robert probably felt he'd finally proved himself. But while his public image grew, his personal life, including his relationship with his family, reached new lows. The more important Robert became, the more unpredictable his moods were. He regularly ruined family gatherings with tantrums and outbursts. Every one of his children had a cruel memory of their father. For instance, after hiring his son Ian at one of his companies, Robert impulsively fired him for being late to pick him up. He agreed to hire him back a few months later at half his original salary. According to later reporting, he briefly cut off his son Philip for marrying an Argentinian woman and mocked his eldest daughter Anne, calling her ugly and a failed actor. The only child he didn't treat with contempt was his youngest daughter, Galen. And according to Betty, she was, quote, spoiled. As for Betty herself, she remained a faithful wife and support system for Robert, even as he grew more distant. She believed marriage was forever and refused to leave, even when she was certain her husband was having affairs. Ironically, it was Robert who first threatened to end their marriage. 
but that too ended up being another way to lash out at those around him. He never followed through. What Robert lacked in meaningful relationships, he tried to fill with money, and he had lots of it. Robert threw lavish parties that grew more ostentatious every year. At these events, he wore a microphone on the lapel of his jacket so he could connect to speakers throughout the room. If he wanted to talk to someone far away, he turned up the volume and sent his voice across the house like some sort of deity. When he was bored of hosting people at his mansions, he threw galas on his 180-foot super yacht. He named the boat the Lady Galen after his alleged favorite child. The yacht was only a small fraction of the luxury vehicles Robert collected. By 1986, he owned more private helicopters than anyone else in Europe, and he took them everywhere, even when he was just going across town. Talk about a carbon footprint. Before boarding the helicopter on his rooftop, Robert supposedly developed a tradition of urinating down the side of the building, another demonstration of how he thought the unspoken rules of society didn't apply to him. By the late 80s, things shifted. The lavish parties became even less intimate affairs, filled with fabulous strangers who'd come to gawk at the mogul. And guests couldn't help but notice a distinct lack of sentiment to anything inside his home. According to high society rumors, the artwork was atrocious. The furniture looked like it came from a garage sale in the 1920s. And while the bookshelves appeared to be filled with impressive titles, a closer inspection revealed some of the texts were made of cardboard. Those empty books seemed to be a metaphor for Robert Maxwell's personal life. A psychiatrist friend of one of Robert's editors predicted the mogul would bring himself to ruin and leave his children nothing but ashes. Shockingly, they might have been on to something. To build his empire, Robert borrowed a lot of money. By late 1990, the debt for his main company, Maxwell Communications, totaled over two billion pounds. And financiers were happy to loan to him, so long as his businesses seemed to be doing well. Except they weren't. Robert's stock prices were plummeting. He needed to keep them from falling too low, or the banks would demand he pay them back immediately. To prop up his teetering organization, Robert bought shares of his own stock. But it wasn't enough. The prices continued to falter. To add to his troubles, Robert was publicly accused of being closely linked to the Mossad, the Israeli Secret Service, in October of 1991. This caused the stock prices to tank even further. Robert responded to these allegations, calling them, quote, ludicrous, a total invention. Desperate, Robert sold his beloved Pergamon Press to make some of his debt payments, a move that shocked his entire family. One of Robert's employees saw this as an ominous sign. He said, quote, The moment I heard about it, I had no doubt he knew the end was coming. By the fall of 1991, Robert's physical health caught up to the stress he must have been feeling. Robert was putting on more weight. He hardly slept at night. He always seemed to be gasping for air and was perpetually in bad spirits while seeming increasingly erratic. His family was seriously worried. Finally, on October 31st, as his debtors closed in around him, 
Robert seemed to reach the end of his rope. That's when he decided to take a vacation. Robert flew to Gibraltar the following morning, boarded his yacht, and took off for a few days of R&R. His son Kevin was in charge of the business in his absence. Shortly after Robert jetted off, Kevin got some unexpected news. According to John Preston's book, lawyers from a Swiss bank visited his office unannounced. They told Kevin his father had defaulted on a loan. The lawyers were giving Robert one last chance to repay the 57 million pounds by November 5th, 1991. If he didn't, they'd tell the media. On November 4th, the day before his deadline, Robert refused to fly back to London. He remained aboard the Lady Galen. Kevin got into a shouting match with his father over the phone, but made little progress. He hung up angry, wondering how his dad was going to get out of this one. The next morning, Kevin called Robert first thing, but he didn't answer. By noon, Robert hadn't come out of his room or answered any calls. The captain of the Lady Galen, a man named Gus Rankin, instigated a shipwide search. After three unsuccessful attempts, the captain called the local authorities, telling them, we've lost Mr. Maxwell. According to the crew of the Lady Galen, Robert had last been seen around 5 a.m. when he complained his room was too cold. It wasn't until 11 a.m. when the boat anchored in the Canary Islands that the crew realized Robert was no longer on board. They concluded he must have gone overboard early in the morning. The Spanish maritime authorities were immediately called to search the waters while the Maxwell family waited anxiously for news. Finally, around 6 p.m., they received a phone call. The authorities had found Robert's lifeless body floating in the ocean. News of Robert's death splattered the front pages of newspapers worldwide. Right next to reports of him defaulting on his bank loans and a scandal involving his newspaper pension funds. As it turned out, Robert wasn't just purchasing his own stock to keep his companies afloat. He was dipping into the pension funds of his employees to purchase those shares. All in, Robert was accused of stealing over $500 million from his employees. And now that he was gone, his sons, Kevin and Ian, were on the hook for every penny. Nearly a year after their father died, Kevin and Ian were arrested and charged with conspiracy to defraud the pensioners. The next four years were a never-ending cascade of court cases. The two brothers faced up to 12 years in prison for their father's crimes. Ian claimed he had no idea what Robert had been doing. And though Kevin said he knew his father was borrowing from the pension fund, he maintained he didn't know that was illegal. A jury found them both not guilty in 1996. But the public was furious with the verdict. Everywhere Kevin and Ian went, they were harassed, shouted at, spit on. At the tender age of 33, Kevin Maxwell's case became the biggest personal bankruptcy suit in British history. In his endless quest to fill the void inside him, Robert Maxwell had toppled his empire and left his children nothing but ashes, just as the psychiatrist had predicted. 
He also left the world with a mystery. What exactly happened to him aboard the Lady Galen? Several conspiracy theories emerged following Robert's death. People speculated he was pushed from the ship. Others said he faked his death. Some wondered whether he took his own life. But Robert's family was adamant there was little to no chance he'd jump from the boat intentionally. Many of Robert's children believed something about their father's death didn't feel right. Galen went on record saying she believed her father was murdered. Which is exactly what we'll get into in our next episode as we explore three theories surrounding the mogul's death. Like conspiracy theory number one, that Robert was killed by the crew of the Lady Galen. Or theory number two, Robert was killed by Israeli assassins. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, that Robert Maxwell's death was just an unfortunate accident. Today, newspapers are run using the same ultra-streamlined, cost-cutting methods Robert implemented. In some ways, he's the reason modern journalism is the way it is. His influence also trickled down to his children, his most enduring legacy of all. Some of them strive to live more virtuous lives, while others, like Galen, chose to follow in his wicked footsteps. Whichever path they chose, it's fair to say that Robert passed along his insatiable hunger for more, a trait that ultimately led to his downfall. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on Robert Maxwell, amongst the many sources we used, we found Fall by John Preston to be extremely helpful to our research. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Danny Messerschmidt, edited by Wendelin Sobroso and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Sapphire Williams, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.